0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. With the circumstances in Ephesus, Paul has left Timothy there, really in the hopes of seeing resolution and restoration. Timothy's task is to overcome false teaching with true teaching, and he does so bringing about the knowledge of God, not merely so that they will know about God, but so the Ephesians will love God. Thus far, we have seen this take place in verses 3 and 4 with the appearance of false teaching. Last week, we saw Paul establish then the aim of true teaching. And now this week, today, in contrast to the aim of true teaching, we look at the ambition of false teaching. The word of God reads in First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. At an accession council on September tenth, 2022, Charles III was formally pronounced King of England following the death of his mother just a few days earlier. It was yesterday, though, that the coronation actually took place. And even here in the United States, that coronation is looked upon with fascination. For some, it is a mere fascination because they're fascinated with all things celebrity. But for many people, it's a fascination with a process that is very different than what we are used to. This is a very unique circumstance and not one that we experience very often. And so we're trying to make sense of the events taking place. What occurred yesterday is something that has existed, at least in the basic elements and form and function, for nearly 1,000 years. At the, at, as a point of history, I want to take a moment, and I want to consider what did take place and why. At best, most of us are really unable to grasp a century of time. We can talk about it and think that was about 100 years ago. But to think about something that happened or began or occurred a millennium ago and has been in place that long, or even slightly less, is very hard for us to grasp fully. Consider first that the events that took place took place at Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey is a church, a place known throughout all the world. It is considered one of the key historical places in Christianity. I would definitely disagree with some of the preaching of present day. But having been at services there, it is slightly awe-inspiring to think that what is taking place there is people lifting up prayers to the Lord. And at the very least, the Word of God has been read publicly. Again, for about a 1,000 years. Westminster Abbey has been a place of coronation for about that same amount of time. In its original form, the coronation service was meant to be a service of worship, and the form of it is actually instructed by Scripture. Few people of the secular world understand this, and I would say that there are probably few Christians that don't even understand the significance of these events. The coronation service is an effort to adopt the process of anointing kings as was done for Israel throughout the Old Testament. What Great Britain has done is adopted something that goes all the way back to the King's David and King Solomon. And that should tell us something. That tells us that originally the British monarchy was a Christian monarchy. The anointing ceremony takes us all the way back specifically to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1 when he was anointed by Zadok, the priest. He was anointed with oil poured upon him to show his kingship before Israel on behalf of the Lord. In the same way, King Charles was also anointed, though the actual coronation was not publicly visible. Instead, what was revealed is that a screen was erected to hide the king from public view. And what he did is in a moment he went behind that screen and then the priest approached the king and anointed him with oil, just as Zadok anointed Solomon. While that whole process is occurring, what is being sung within Westminster Abbey is a song titled, Zadok the Priest. That song was composed by George Frederick Handel in 1727. And it was composed for the coronation of King George II. So that music is nearly 300 years old. And it reminds us of a coronation that occurred almost 300 years ago as well. At a later point in the process, Charles III will sit upon a coronation chair That chair is more than 700 years old. In that chair, just below the seat, is a block of stone called the Stone of Destiny. At one time, it was called the Stone of Scone, and that was because it came from Scotland. That's where this chair's roots are. It was what the Scottish monarchy did for their coronation. And when they became united under British rule, that chair then was incorporated into the coronation process for Great Britain as a whole. In 1996, that chair was returned to Scotland, which means that for the coronation to take place, as it did yesterday, that chair had to be transported once again from Scotland and imported into England, just for the ceremony. The crown, that at least one of the crowns that King Charles wore, St. Edward's crown. That crown is more than 350 years old and it's made of solid gold. And then the king will receive several key instruments. Most notably, he will receive the scepter and the orb. The scepter is a sign of temporal authority of the king. A scepter in hand signifies power in hand. And that orb is specifically a sign of divine authority. It shows the divine right of kings, meaning that the king is underneath the authority of God and acts on the behalf of God. And then, as part of that whole process, King Charles III will receive the title of the throne, which is what? We know, of course, king, but it is also the defender. Of the faith. Interestingly enough, the defender of the faith, that title does not go back a thousand years. It's a title given during the point of Reformation, roughly 700 years ago. It was given by the Pope of the Catholic Church to King Henry VIII. That right there by itself is kind of intriguing to think about if you know your history. During the Reformation, King Henry VIII wrote a tract that denounced and and contradicted Martin Luther, and this greatly pleased the Pope. And so in response, the Pope bestowed upon King Henry VIII that title, Defender of the Faith. What makes this intriguing is that later on, King Henry VIII and the Pope would have a very public falling out. So public was that falling out that we now talk about it today because of the way it altered history. That falling out, of course, was Henry's desire to divorce his wife because she was not producing an heir, was not producing at least a son to inherit the throne. Henry VIII is known for killing multiple of his wives because none of them gave him a son. And so he may have returned the Pope and even the Pope's representatives to their place in Rome, but he never returned the title defender of the faith. And that's where we kind of get into a little bit of controversy with King Charles. While his mother is noted for her exceptional youth when she ascended to the throne, King Charles, on the other hand, is noted as being exceptionally old for inheriting the throne. He was, in fact, present at his mother's coronation 70 years ago. It was always anticipated that one day he would be king. And now that is the case. But a number of years ago, in an interview with Jonathan Dimbleby, as prince at that time, Charles said that he would not receive that title, Defender of the Faith. Instead, he would call himself Defender of Faith. So it's something he meant in a very general New Age sense. In one sense, he still receives the title Defender of the Faith because Charles doesn't have the authority to change that. The title is actually under the control of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the England Church. Only he can change that title. But how Charles receives that title says something. So we have a process here. Dating back nearly a thousand years, it's unchanged in many ways, and yet here we have a new king already changing something about it. Unlike his mother, King Charles III has always been superficial in his Christian faith. This is evidenced by his syncretism, meaning his willingness to meld one faith with the other even though they can't really coexist. This is seen in the idea of so many different faiths participating in the ceremony yesterday. At 74 years old, King Charles III represents a very modern mindset that all paths lead to God. Despite that title, King Charles is the opposite of the defender of the faith. In fact, his ambitions go beyond that title as he aspires to be something more. He represents what we see going on in the church in Ephesus, in our text, nearly 2,000 years later, 1,960 years to be exact. Ephesus is a church that was sanctioned to be a defender of the Lord's faith, and yet the leaders had their own aspirations, and in seeking those aspirations, they have set aside their God-given mandate in favor of their self-willed motivation. As we will see, the root of all false teaching is the same. It's the exaltation of self at the expense of the exaltation of God. This morning we look at our text and we we see four characteristics of false teachers. Four characteristics of false teachers. I want you to consider first that false teachers swerve from godly character Any person who studies geometry knows that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Repeated changes in direction means it will take longer to arrive at the destination. My family has friends from years ago who experienced this firsthand. Though one cannot take a directly straight path between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, the road is fairly direct, and it is laid out before your eyes. All you need to do is follow it, and it will get you from Vegas to L.A. These days, that drive is expected to take you about four hours. But at the time, these friends, these two ladies, the roads weren't quite the same, and so probably expect seven to eight hours. At that time, expecting that, that doesn't count stops. Those two ladies took at least two days. I wish I was exaggerating that, but I'm not. (laughs) It took them two days, and that counts. They finally got tired at the end of the day and rested and stayed at a hotel. What happened, though, is like the false teachers of our text they they had deviated from the predetermined plan, from the predetermined path that was set before them. That's what our false teachers are doing. Verse 6 says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, they have wandered away into vain discussion. Last week we said that a person may choose their consequences or they may choose their actions, but they cannot choose both. The false teachers have ignored the ambition set before them, the aim, the consequence, and instead they've chosen their own course of action. The result is that they have swerved away from the intended goal. That's what our text says. They've swerved from these. Like the two ladies who had Los Angeles set before them, only needing to follow that path, that road to get them there. The Lord had placed before the church in Ephesus a goal to glorify Himself through the work of the church and its leaders. But they were distracted by their own agenda and their own egos. They swerved from their God-intended path, and they missed their intended target. More specifically, the text reveals that they swerved from the priorities of verse five. They swerved from these, these being they swerved from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And since each of those is a prerequisite for love, we can only conclude that these false teachers also missed the aim to love that's really disheartening because genuine love comes from genuinely experiencing the love of god we love because he first loved us it says in first john 419 do you understand what that means for the church in ephesus It means that we have these church leaders, these teachers, who are responsible for the teaching and the shepherding of the members, and yet they're not even converted themselves. How can a person be responsible for stewarding people towards the Lord when that leader lacks a relationship with the Lord himself? Sadly, I don't think that's uncommon in many churches today. I remember many years ago, a a local newspaper, obviously not here, it was a newspaper of the city where we lived at the time. They ran a story of a pastor's group that met for coffee, at least weekly, often three times, four times a week. When that article came out, I remember a friend of mine coming up to me, really incensed at what these pastors did, because... Each of them, though they were about 50 at the time, which was about 20 years ago, in an effort to seem cool and to seem hip, the pastors admitted that when they got together, they talked and gossiped, that they lusted. They even would meet regularly and talk about the people of their church. There was a time when I worked with a man very entrenched in the ways of the world, I'm not even going to go how far off the rails he was. Him and I got along great. We actually did quite a few things together. I'd love to share with him. But the reality was, he didn't want anything to do with Christianity. One of those pastors from that news article frequented the Starbucks that we worked at together. And one day that man, that friend, said to me, you know, and he didn't say just to me, but to multiple people, if that pastor would talk to me, at the very least, I would sit down and listen to him. Several of us were believers, and we pleaded with that pastor to talk to this man with the, about the gospel. And he never would. A few months later, that co-worker died. He's about the same age as those pastors at the time, about 50-ish, and he died from a severe heart attack. Time would reveal that many men in that pastor's group first off, were just flat out unqualified, as evidenced by the fact that they had to be removed from ministry. But some of them weren't even believers. They had renounced everything that they were supposedly supposed to be teaching previously. Unfortunately, I think this is a routine situation in our churches, a situation in which we have believers acting as teachers and leaders. The reason they sought to appease the world was because in reality, they were part of the world. Thankfully, this is not everyone. Our text says here, certain men, as in only some of the men, only some of the leaders have swerved. Not everyone is tied up in the false teaching that has taken place here in Ephesus. But some had missed their true destination, and they've swerved from that pure heart and that good conscience and that sincere faith. But the Lord encourages his people, though. People can avoid swerving from the Lord's aim. A well-known verse of Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 reads, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make you. Straight your paths. A straight path is possible, this tells us, but it comes from trusting the Lord. Though, or through even just a brief self examination, those who find themselves swerving from the Lord, from His path, they will likely find what they're doing is leaning on their own understanding and not on the wisdom of the Lord. How do we know when we trust more in our understanding than we do in the Lord's wisdom? When we rely on our intuition more than we do on the Lord's instruction? When we stand up and proclaim more than we sit down and pray? False teachers will swerve from godly character. I want you to know, second, that false teachers wander from godly conversation. False teachers wander from godly conversation. Verse 6 doesn't just say certain persons have swerved from these, but it says by swerving from these, they have wandered away into vain discussion. I have a friend who, in the middle of a group conversation one day, said, You know, I've noticed something about myself. When my heart is right before the Lord, I talk very openly about the things of the Lord. But if my heart is not right with him, then I talk less about him. In fact, she says, I, I go to any length, of, if I go to any length of conversation, without ever bringing up anything spiritual, then I know I ha- have cause and need to examine myself deeply. Because if I'm not talking spiritually, then my heart's probably not Right. That assessment is applicable to most people, and it's not a surprise, because we know that Matthew 12, 34 says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The state of our conversation reveals the state of our heart. We see this truth illustrated here with the false teachers. (coughs) They've wandered into vain discussions, because vanity is the inclination of their heart. They're wandering away into these vain discussions, and what that does is just gives evidence to what we just talked about. It gives evidence to the fact that they're swerving from the love of the Lord. They've turned aside from meaningful talk of godliness, and instead they're engaging in the pointless talk of worthlessness. That's a scary attribute of false teachers. If you look at that phrase, having turned aside... You may not realize that the indication here is it's not that these false teachers have merely stepped outside of the Lord's path. It's not as though they accidentally wandered outside those lines. In turning aside these false teachers, they've torn themselves from the right path. Literally, they have wrenched themselves from this path. It was a willful act because their ambitions were far greater than being simple servants of the Lord. Of the five times that this word turned aside is used, four times it is found in the pastoral epistles. So the two letters to Timothy and to Titus. The one time it is not found in those pastoral epistles, we read it in Hebrews 12, 13. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse 11. Let me read this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That's actually the significance of this term, turned aside, be put out of joint. So we could read that, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be turned aside. That phrase is a medical term to describe dislocation of a person's limbs, like a shoulder when it's been dislocated. In the case of the false teachers, they've dislocated themselves from their proper place. They're teaching when they should not be teaching at all, because their teaching was meaningless. It was vain discussion. Instead, they they should be heeding the call of Hebrews 12 to make their paths straight, not having any joint out of place. They discipline themselves to see those paths made straight. It's kind of ironic that those who are teaching have nothing to teach, that those who desire this position that requires them to speak publicly and profoundly have nothing but empty speech. Gregory of Nysa calls this word juggling. And he says, What is this vain juggling with words? Is he aware that it is God of whom he speaks, who was in the beginning and is in the Father, nor was there any time when he was not he knows not what he says, nor what he affirms, but he endeavors as though he were constructing the pedigree of a mere man to apply to the Lord of all creation the language which properly belongs to our nature here below. Word juggling. Though the teachers, they may sound intellectual and they may sound impressive, the words which would, with which they speak They're devoid of any content that is meaningful. And that's devoid of any truth that is helpful. Their words may even sound spiritual, but they lack spiritual results. Psalm 94.11 describes the thoughts of these men. It says they only give an appearance of the wisdom. And the psalmist says the Lord knows the thoughts of men, that they are but a breath. John Kitchen puts it differently and basically says, Eloquence can be a mask for ignorance. And that's what you see here. Meaningless talk has no value. It imparts no worthwhile knowledge. It generates no heart change. And it creates no godly character. It is vain and without value. It lacks meaning, it lacks significance. Perhaps the best modern example of this is most of the conversations that now take place on the internet. It is there that opinions are freely shared, and offense is willfully made, and outrage is freely propagated. So many of the conversations on the internet lack both content and character like the false teachers in Ephesus, that we must guard against this. We must guard against wandering from godly conversations. While this is especially true of the false teachers, I, I think it's the goal of all people. I know it's the goal of all people, because in an earlier letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as a good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those here. Who here? A religion of mere talk grieves the heart. It does not exhort, it does not edify, it does not encourage. This is a call here for the content of one's speech to reflect the content of one's heart. False teachers, they swerve from godly character. They wander from godly conversation. I want you to know third now that the false teachers divert from godly ambition. Their ambition here is to teach the Mosaic Law and make it binding on the people. Verse 7 tells us, simply, they desire to be teachers of the law. Every cult, every false religion is born out of 1 Timothy 1.7. False teachings and movements always come from the desire to elevate self above God. All false teachings are born out of the desire to be God rather than to submit to God. And that's the problem that we find in Ephesus as well. The false teacher's priority was on their position, not on their proclamation. The great London doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once wrote, Teaching the word is such an awesome task that a godly man shrinks from it. Nothing but this overwhelming sense of being called and of compulsion should ever lead anyone to teach. The problem of the false teachers is in Ephesus is that they had these godly ambitions, but without a godly call or godly character. They desired to be teachers of the law, but had no desire to submit to the law. There are godly aspirations in scripture. We actually will see this later on in our letter to Timothy here. Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Indicating that indeed, to have ambition of position sometimes is an okay thing. But man's ambitions are always directed by God's conditions. It is okay to seek after these positions, but they must be according to God's calling. They must be according to God's character, and they must be according to God's commands. These teachers here desired to be teachers of the law. Not because they were pursuing God... But because they were pursuing their own prominence and their own power and their own prestige. In his work, Antiquities, a Jewish historian, Josepha shares the importance of this role, teacher of the law, in Jewish culture. And he says that Jewish people give credit for wisdom to those alone who have an exact knowledge of the law and who are capable of interpreting the meaning of the Holy Scriptures. And then he says this. Though many have laboriously undertaken this training, scarcely two or three have succeeded. The Jews prized the knowledge of scripture. It was important to them. And when a man became or turned 40 years old, he could be ordained. With ordination came several things. First, it came power. It gave them power because they could influence decisions, even judicial decisions. It also gave them prestige because ordination made them highly esteemed amongst their fellow Jews. And then a combination of those two things, of course, leads to prominence because they were considered prominent members of the Jewish community. The desire to be teachers of the law for these false teachers had nothing to do with teaching the law. Actually, in contrast to the verse, verse 5, which we read last week, where true teaching is the mark, or is marked, by a love of God, the false teachers here, they're motivated by a love of self. This earns them the description that they are puffed up with conceit, that they understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And Timothy goes on in that description of them. We would do well to contrast these selfish motives of the false teachers with the selfless heart of the Scottish reformer John Knox, who's described that when he was called forth to preach the gospel, He burst forth in abundant tears. He withdrew himself to his chamber, hid himself from view, and his countenance and his behavior from that day till the day that he was compelled to present himself to the public place of preaching, did sufficiently declare the grief and trouble of his heart. The thought of preaching the gospel was so overwhelming to John Knox that indeed, he was sobered and overwhelmed. We live in a celebrity culture. Even the the quote-unquote church operates with a celebrity mindset in which certain individuals are elevated to celebrity status, given not just great recognition, but greater influence. But not because of who they are in Christ, but because of who they are in the church, the physical building of church. And the result is while we expect the culture to strive after celebrity status, even the church is striving after that, just within the context of the church. I'm sure most of us can label certain preachers who have achieved that celebrity status within the Christian world. The difference often is that from within the church, we consider that seeking after that status more sanctified because at least it's in the house of God. But a love of self is still a love of self, whether inside the church or outside the church. In fact, I would say it's probably more horrifying in the church because we would expect the world to look like the world. But those inside the church are to look different than the world. Some of the wisest men and best teachers I know, they're pastors that the majority of Christians would overlook. That's because these men, they exist in small towns and in even smaller churches. so Most people would think very little of them. That's the opposite of celebrity status, actually. I can think of one man in particular. I think a lot of people would benefit sitting under this man's teaching. But because he ministers in Idaho in a town of 600 people in a church that's roughly about 50 to 75 people, most people will never hear about him. And most people would never receive him into their church. Small town pastor really must not be that great. But he's the opposite of those false teachers who define their status by the size of their church. And he's opposite of the expectations of people who divine the ability to teach based on the size of the church. What makes the ungodly ambitions sorrowful here in our text, and and in general, is thinking about what the people who seek power and prominence and prestige, what they ignore. What do they miss out on? First, by desiring to be a teacher of the law, they miss out on the true learning of the law. Without the law, they lose their opportunity to find themselves as recipients of God's grace and mercy because they have no understanding of their need for that grace and mercy. Second, they miss out on a true knowledge of God. Though they may know much about God, they don't know God very much. And third, they miss out on a true love of people. Because they don't know God, they they don't know people We should pity such a person. They fail to experience the blessings of God, though they give the appearance of godliness, at least outwardly. It's angering when false teachers have a foothold to deceive the people. We should find ourselves indignant towards the effect that false teachers have on this world. But that doesn't mean that we're also indifferent towards those false teachers we should have great pity on them because one day they will stand before god and receive a severe judgment for their deception but in the meantime they're missing out on the great blessings of god they're guilty not just of deceiving others but in this case they're guilty of deceiving themselves while they're living their best life now they've neglected the greater life to come false teachers will divert from godly ambitions I want you to notice, finally, then, false teachers turn from godly understanding. Elsewhere in Corinthians, Paul writes, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to, not to bring to nothing, things are. And then he goes on from 1 Corinthians 1 to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And then says this. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit But they are foolish, and they meet the criteria that we see in 1 Corinthians 1 of what foolishness looks like. According to our text in 1 Timothy, they're desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The false teachers before us, they they stand before their people, declaring many things as though they're true. But what we learn is that their teaching is nothing. It's vain discussion, as we talked about. It amounts to nothing but meaningless talk. And now we're told it's not just meaningless, but even the false teachers have no understanding of it. Their great folly is that they preach, but they know not what if they preach of. The false teachers here lack understanding in a couple of ways. First, they don't even understand what they're saying and yet they make assertions without knowing what they say. Notice what it says. They are without understanding. Present tense, it's ongoing. They didn't lack understanding once. They didn't understand in the past and then started understanding later. They still don't understand. They're unconverted. They're lacking the Holy Spirit, and they lack discernment about the things of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 we just read. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Notice it is not that these false teachers lack conviction. In fact, they're very convicted here. They are so confident in what they believe, but they believe the wrong things. They're, they're so convicted that they're insisting on their beliefs and they're declaring them as absolute truth. That's what that means. But they're not true at all. John Stott suggests, I, I cannot help wondering if this may not be why there are so few preachers whom God is using today. There are plenty of popular preachers, but not many powerful ones. Is it because the cost of such preaching is too great? It seems that the only preaching God honors, he says, through which his wisdom and power are expressed, is a preaching of a man who is willing in himself to be both a weakling and a fool. God not only chooses weak and foolish people to save, but weak and foolish preachers through whom to save them. Or at least preachers who are content to be weak, and seem foolish in the eyes of the world. We're not always willing to pay the price. We are constantly tempted to covet a reputation as men of learning or men of influence, to seek honor in academic circles and compromise our old-fashioned message in order to do so, and to cultivate personal charm or forcefulness so as to sway the people committed to our care. There's a great problem in the church when the church is unwilling to stand firm in what it knows to be true, and yet at the same time is willing to stand with what it knows to be false. False teaching occurred then. It is prevalent now. Four marks of a false teacher. They will swerve from godly character. They will wander from godly conversation. They will divert from godly ambitions and they will turn from godly understanding. At his coronation, King Charles III walked in in a ceremony that has been held in the traditional form for a thousand years. But he did something also that was established long before. Though his coronation is steeped in tradition from a thousand years ago, his denial of faith was established 2,000 years ago. All he is doing is engaging in the new age religion of electicism, meaning that he elects at will what he will follow. At the same time, he elects what he will not follow. And he will never commit to a full system of beliefs. That's a modern religion. Because of yesterday's events, he serves as an example and a face of this religion. But King Charles was only one man of many. We need defenders of the faith, not defectors. King Charles is a defector. This morning I received an email from a defender. A friend of mine with the Slavic Gospel Association emailed after I said I was praying. And he says, we really needed it. 20 minutes before the service this morning, so this has been about eight hours ago now, their time where he was, I'm not even gonna say. About 20 minutes before the service, I was informed that the FSB was going to be coming to monitor our service. If you don't know what the FSB is, it's the KGB, but just in modern terms. So KGB is coming to monitor that church, and the reason is that in this country, the church has to submit an application and be approved as a church. And the church had submitted the application because they wanted to be an official church, not of the state, but be able to operate openly as a church. Under a tourist visa, this friend of mine is not allowed to preach. But at the insistence of everybody in the church, they said, we really want you to go ahead and preach and share. So what they did is basically called it an extended greeting time of this friend from America. And he did. He even talked about, should I soften certain things? He definitely avoided criticism of the government, but when it came down to it, he didn't change his message. He didn't change the word of God, obviously. Afterwards, that KGB agent left, and they said they were gathering, they were talking. About 20 minutes later, that KGB agent returned and said, that man from America, his preaching was very good. So despite the fact that technically he wasn't supposed to be preaching, the KGB agent first off saw it as much, but then also responded to it. What the Lord needs is not more detractors of the faith. He needs more defenders of the faith. Let's pray. Father God, in your glory and awesome power you have declared yourself to be God over all, Lord. Father, I pray that we would declare you God over all as well. In this time when it can be scary to stand up for the absolute truth that you've given us, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be great defenders of this truth, great defenders of this faith, and great defenders of your name, Lord. Help us to remain firm and established and not to be defectors. But rather, may we look to you May we proclaim you and may we live in you. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to look upon Paul and Timothy and to see you work through them in the church of Ephesus as they confront false teaching. Father, may that be an encouragement for us. May that also, Lord, teach us as we seek to honor you more as a body of Christ, as your church. We commit all of these things to you in your holy and precious name we pray, amen.